Welcome to the premiere episode of Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week I'm honored to have Robert C. Martin, better known as Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's see. I, I um, started programming when I was 12. That would have been in 1964. My mother gave me a little plastic computer that had three flip-flops, little plastic sliders that had two states, uh, six AND gates that were little metal rods that would slip into slots. And you could program it by slipping um, little segments of soda straws onto pegs that would block the rods. And uh, Essentially, it was a a three-bit finite state machine. The machine fascinated me and hooked me on the idea of programming. So after that, I just devoured everything I could on computers. I've been an assembly language programmer, a COBOL programmer, a Fortran programmer, PL1, done a fair bit of C, uh, quite a bit of C++, Java, a little C Sharp. At the moment, I'm fascinated by Clojure, and I've done quite a bit of Ruby in the past. So um, I've done a a bit of programming in the last 40-some years. Just just a little bit, I would say. Mm. One of the one of the one of the youngins out there that's coming up, huh? Trying to do my best. <laughs> so I'd like to start out with talking about the book structure and interpretation of computer programs. Oh yes, yes, yes. I uh, nice. you were on a podcast a couple of years ago. I think about three or four years ago now. Uh, it, it, Ignite it, your it, coding. It, 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 in which they had, it was a Microsoft-backed podcast, and they talked to different people, and you were one of the guests. And I managed to get a sneak a question in there about some book recommendations. You threw out Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, which made my list of books to try and find. Eventually found it and read it. What do you think has made that book so done so well, in your opinion? It's, um, it was recommended to me probably 10 years ago. And I, I went out and I bought it, and it sat on my shelf, as books tend to do, for uh, probably four or five years. And then I picked it up, and I started reading it, and I was astonished by the book. If, for those of you who haven't read the book, it, it assumes you know nothing, but it apologizes for nothing. It just roars off at light speed, expecting you to keep up. Uh, The language it uses is scheme, but that doesn't matter much because there's virtually no syntax to scheme, so uh, very, very easy to learn. And the book just tears off and describes basic algorithms, basic computing, symbol tables, message passing, hashing. It just goes from concept to concept to concept at terrific speed. So I'm sitting there reading this book, literally throwing the pages, reading it like it's a, a consuming novel. And I get um, about 250 pages in, and they put on the brakes. They screech to a halt, and they start this apology. And the apology goes on for several pages about all the bad things that are going to happen now because of this new thing they're going to introduce. And at the end of that, they introduce an assignment operator. And I was astounded by this. I thought, wait a minute. And I had to go back through the book, through all the 250 previous pages, to prove to myself that none of the programs they had shown had any assignment at all. 
They go on to describe why assignment causes problems, how it corrupts the model of computing, it introduces time as a factor, it separates the flow of control to uh, into two segments, that which took place before the assignment and that which took place after. They go through all that analysis. And then for 50 more pages, they show you algorithms that make use of assignment and why you'd want to and what kind of disciplines you can use to protect yourself from it. And then they put the brakes on again. And they apologize again. And this time they introduce threads. And I thought it was fascinating that they equated assignment as corrupting as threads are. Yeah, it was. I heard your recommendation and found that highly interesting, although you did give the spoiler of assignment doesn't come late in the book. So it was something that was another interesting perspective to read from is knowing we're doing all this without assignment up front and seeing how far we go. Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it was it was startling for me to read it. And so it's become a kind of um, Bible for me. Also, there's all the videos are online. So you can see these two guys teaching the course that they taught at MIT from the textbook while they're writing scheme code on a blackboard with all the trailing parentheses. It's just fascinating to watch. And structure and interpretation of computer programs isn't necessarily a new book either. It's a book that was done in the 80s. Right. Yeah, this is the um, the textbook for the MIT computer science course in the 80s. So the videos were all done in the 80s as well. So there's no fancy electronics. Most of the code is written on a blackboard. Sometimes they'll uh, they'll get some projector out that sort of projects characters. It's pretty funny. Uh, and you watch all the students. The camera swings around and looks at all the students, and they're the typical college students, all bored, trying to figure out what these what these guys are trying to say up there. And meanwhile, Abelson and Sussman are really excited about what they're doing, and they're drawing all this code. It's fun to watch. Do you have an idea of what makes that book hold up so well for for readers today, as opposed to seeing all of these books which promise language X in 24 hours or learn, yeah. learn this in seven days? This is not a language X in 24 hours kind of book. This is a book that requires serious thought. <laughs> the concepts they they introduce are concepts that you don't usually run into unless you've studied for a good long time. The book is, in one sense, very timeless. The The concepts presented in there could have been presented in the 60s. Lisp was an active language at the time. Most of the ideas that the book covers had been invented by that time. The book is also topical now because of the recent and rather enthusiastic interest in functional programming. And that's something that's that's moved through our industry in the last four or five years, this notion that we should all be thinking about functional programming. And, of course, that all stems from the failure of Moore's Law and the the um, uh, proliferation of multiple cores. Yeah, it's something, I guess it's the way it gets down and boils to the fundamentals, which kind of are translated across languages even, where you can take some of the concepts of immutability and use them as value objects as described in Domain-Driven Design by Evans, where some of these concepts that it outlines are more timeless in and of themselves and not specific to the language it's in. Would you say that's a fair shake of that as well? 
Well, I think it is. What, what's startling about the book is that it introduces concepts that you don't normally find in Java or C-sharp or C++. The notion, for example, of streams or lazy lists, lists that have infinite size or indefinite size, lists that are, um, the elements are computed as they are requested. That's a fascinating topic, and it changes, it changes the style with which you write your code. Rather than looping through a list, you start drawing elements out of the list until you find you're done. Uh, and the elements of the list are computed lazily. They're computed as needed. So you can take as many or as few as you want. Just something as simple as that, and yet as profound as that, is a fascinating part of that book. And then they show how to build lists like that, and it's utterly trivial. No one would have thought of it if they were writing in Java or C Sharp or C++, but in fact, the lists are trivial. It's, it's a fascinating book. Yeah, one of the big things about that that kind of helped click is having done Java and then C Sharp for, for a good number of years before reading that. I remember kind of early days was like, God, these for loops are all the same. What, like, is there not a way to kind of genericize this? Because I have to keep doing this pattern over and over. And then you read something like SICP, which promotes the functional programming with its map, reduce, filter, and all those other functionals functions for iterating over lists. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, you, you mean these for loops don't have to be written? They're syntactic? <laughs> yeah, it is pretty pretty funny. I remember the first time I wrote a closure program. I I, um, I was brand new to closures about four or five years ago, and uh, I put it online. And Stu Holloway piped in. He came back with, at me and said, "Well, you know, you kind of wrote this in a Java style because you've got loops and you know sentinels and guards. And here's how we would really do this in closure." And he had completely rewritten it to use lazy lists, and all the loops were gone, and it was just this very simple little algorithm that, that did what I wanted it to do. So it was a great lesson that Stu taught me at that point. Yeah, as soon as I realized that, I was like, God, I never want to write a for loop again. How many times have I spent debugging, is is my guard condition correct? Has this, in Java or C Sharp, wait, we tried to add something to this, so now I need a placeholder object to iterate over while I'm modifying the other one when it's just simply declarative for lack of a better term and I don't know that I could come up with one when you do something like this. The book is got a lot of exercises in it and those exercises have been translated into lots of different functional languages. So if you go out on the net, first of all if you go out on the net you can get the book for free. There are PDFs of it out there. MIT is just giving it away. Second of all you can um, you can get versions of the exercises in your favorite functional language. So I, I like to use the closure one, but you can get them in other languages as well. So there's plenty of room to explore this book and the exercises and how it translates to different languages. So you mentioned this book starts out expecting you to know nothing and not apologizing for it. Right. Is And this is something I've been kind of stewing over recently of... If I were to start over or try and work with someone who hasn't started and introduce them, I've been wondering if functional languages may 
kind of be the better starting point than the my path taking the basic on the computer or on going to doing a kind of a very procedural to a object-oriented procedural style, working my way towards more object-oriented, whereas starting to introduce functionally, it seems like it would seem to come through a lot clearer, and without having to worry about a lot of extra things that it seems we have to unlearn coming from the procedural or object-oriented language. Uh, do you have any opinions on that? Well, I think, for example, if you took a language like Haskell and you tried to introduce that to someone who didn't know much about programming, uh, they might struggle a little bit because Haskell is just you know statically typed and there's all kinds of rules and stuff like that. It's got a syntax. If you take a language like Scheme and show it to somebody, or Clojure for that matter, there's almost no syntax there. So it's pretty easy for people to grasp it right away. They don't get the subtleties, of course. But they can start to see the structure of programs pretty quickly. I have um, done this with my granddaughters a fair bit. I'll just sit down at a console and I'll fire up a REPL and just start typing simple closure commands. And within a few minutes, within a few seconds, they can sit down and, and replicate them and maneuver them and change them and do basic calculations and so on. Uh, so it's a pretty easy language to grasp. Now, does the functional element of it make it simpler? Well, maybe, um, because you don't have to even address the idea of assignment, initially anyway. And so you never have to face that A equals A plus 1 statement that is so confusing for people for the first, the first time they see it. Because you know, it makes no sense, A equals A plus 1. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Well, yes, you see, that equal sign is not really an equal sign. It's really a, a move operation. If you don't have to explain that, it might be a little easier. At some point, however, people do have to learn about mutability and assignment. That's fair. Yeah, it's kind of it's something I'd been screw, screwing around with in my head, trying to come up to a rationalization. Uh, but I know you're with 8th Light, and you guys work with a lot of apprentices, some who've had experience and some who are just now coming in, so I didn't know if you had had any experience of seeing that effect as 8th Light does some closure and Ruby and the differences that that might have made. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm, I'm much more interested in, in uh, teaching uh, my granddaughters, you know, kids of that age, 10, 11, 12, and seeing if these languages are useful for that. There's been a lot of attempts to create you know, the perfect educational language. Uh, BASIC was a, a, an early attempt and a terrible language to teach people per computing on. Other languages like Logo came out in the uh, 70s and the 80s, which were nice initially because they had that turtle that you could move around, and the commands to move the turtle were really easy, and you could draw pretty pictures with it. Uh, and then the language got complicated right away. As soon as you wanted to do anything interesting... It started to get complicated. I don't know if there is a perfect educational language. We'll have to see going forward. Uh, right now, I'm interested in, in seeing how far I can push closure on my grandchildren. <laughs> that's That's been one of my kind of thoughts in the background, too, is playing with closure and trying to find a Sphero and essentially turning closure into logo with a real live object that they're moving around the floor. Being able to change the color and say forward three, back three, right three, and seeing what that might actually change and see. <laughs> <laughs> Play with the nieces. 
and see if that could spark them. It's like, here, here's a little robot. You, let's watch it control from the phone. <laughs> now watch what happens. I can type this in, and it moves. Well, that's pretty interesting. And when there are physical objects at play, you, know, you might get uh, some interest going with the kids. Of course, kids just love the screen anyway. Yeah, I've got a. We just have a uh, almost eight month old now, and she just reaches for that laptop <laughs> on my lap, and she's like going for the keys, and she just wants to bang. I was like, I cannot wait to introduce her. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm even planning on trying to raise a geek girl, or at least expose her to her, because I got I got my wife to sign off on the name Ada, so that's. Uh... <laughs> oh boy, your daughter's name is Ada. That's wonderful. Uh, my kids, um, I have four kids and three of them are engineers. Two of them are software developers. One of them is a chemical engineer. And then my eldest daughter is my video producer and camera person and sound person and uh, does all the technical stuff with the video productions that I'm doing on cleancoders.com. Uh, actually, that's a nice little thing that you mentioned is the clean coders website. I've heard that that was done all in Clojure. Is that still hold true? Oh, yeah. The website's all in Clojure. Yeah. Uh, that was a, a fun experiment we did. We started that about two years ago. And, you know, I knew I wanted to do these videos, and I wanted to sell them, and I thought, well, we need a website, and well, why did, let's do this in Clojure. Let's, let's take all this functional stuff seriously uh, and see what we can do. And it turned out to be really pleasant and, and very easy. We can do this whole website without any significant assignment statements. We can uh, use a language like Clojure, a functional language, a Lisp-like language, and put up this um, actually very interesting website, really very full-featured, fun website to, for us to use. So it's been a very successful um, um, experiment. All done with test-driven development, of course. So that kind of gives, just gives yet another nail in the coffin for people that saying, you can't really build business apps or anything worth of value in a functional language. It's all theoretical, mathematical experimentation that you do using using these functional language. Yeah, but that, that's a common excuse that was used with uh, every new revolution. So they said that about OO, they said that about structured programming. Everybody always says that, and then, of course, we learn that well, no, actually, you can actually do real things with this, and it's it's actually beneficial to do real things with it. So, so you mentioned you did test drove the whole website in Clojure. I'm yeah. wondering, how has your test-driven development changed in relation to having an environment with a stronger REPL? Because I know that some people lean more towards REPL-driven development, and some people do are still hardcore test-driven development, and there's a balance of, for some people in between. What have you found there with a very strong REPL as opposed to some of the other languages, which having a REPL would be incomprehensible to the people in that environment? Yeah, so uh, a REPL, which for those who don't know, is a read-evaluate print loop, which it's the kind of um, tool that you sit and you type your code in and it executes right as soon as you type it. So you can play with concepts very easily in a REPL. And REPL's valuable. I, we use it all the time. It's a nice way to experiment and try out things and, and fiddle around and, and uh, try and understand a problem. It does not in any way replace test-driven development. Test-driven development is double-entry bookkeeping. Test-driven development is a way to say what you're going to build twice in two different ways 
to make sure that you have built what you believe you're going to build. Test-driven development is also a way to create a regression suite, which the REPL doesn't give you. I, I know that there is this argument that says if you have a REPL, you don't need TDD. I think this is a, uh, a very foolish argument indeed, uh, because without that set of tests that you can run over and over and over again, you don't know what you've broken when you make a change somewhere. And so you start to lose confidence in your ability to make those changes. You start to lose confidence in your ability to deploy after making a change. You start to think, oh, I need a, uh, a hardening period, uh, uh, a burn-in time, just to make sure I've driven out any possible bugs I might have introduced. And that's a real deep shame. Yeah, so I wasn't sure. It seems like the REPL becomes really invaluable when you're trying to do your quick spikes to figure out what the, what the API for a consuming library might be or trying to understand different approaches of implementation possibly after you have your test uh, in place Absolutely. where you need to change the what if I do this for list comprehension and closure and change that to a reduce as well, right? Correct? Yeah, I, the, the REPL is, is a wonderfully valuable tool. It's great for debugging. you got something that's going wrong and you don't understand why, and you can start to pull those data structures apart in the REPL and see what's going on. It, it gives you a way to use code interactively uh, as opposed to write, compile, execute. And that's very powerful. The code becomes your probing tool into a running system. It's kind of hard to beat, but it's not a replacement for test-driven development. <laughs> just to hammer that point home again. Yeah, I, I understand. I just wanted to... I know you're a big test-driven development advocate, and I've heard some people say, well, we don't need TDD as much now that we have a awesome Ripple, so I wanted to get your thoughts with that, and I think you kinda managed like, to... Uh, kind of like saying we don't need double-entry bookkeeping now that we've got Quicken. You know, it doesn't really work that way. You need a way to double-check yourself and a persistent way to double-check yourself, not one that you can you know, type on the keyboard and then it all goes away. So with continuing, I guess, with the TDD and test-driven development, a couple of years ago you also came out with a concept uh, you were starting to play around with of the transformation priority premise. Oh my goodness, yes. Have you noticed that change at all between object-oriented languages and functional languages, or, or does it pretty much still hold true for all those transformations? So the transformation priority premise is a premise, first of all. It's not, it's not even a hypothesis. It's just a kind of, oh my goodness, isn't this interesting? I wonder if there's any truth to it. And the idea is simply this. As you are doing test-driven development, uh, you will inevitably come across multiple ways to solve the same problem or multiple ways to pass the currently failing test. Is there some way to determine which of those ways gives the best outcome? And so we um, came up with this list of transformations. Transformations are simply operations you can perform on the code to make it behave differently. So, for example, you, uh, you can insert an if statement. That would be a transformation. It bifurcates the flow of control. Or you can uh, trans transform a constant into a variable. 
or you can transform a single statement into an iterative statement or a recursive statement. And I came up with a list of all of these transformations that I found myself using. And then I examined when I came to these forks in the road where there were multiple ways to get a test to pass, I examined what happened if I used one transformation or another. And I found, I think, that there are certain transformations that are beneficial. And, not so surprisingly, one of the chief transformations that does damage is one that has an assignment in it. So, and this was entirely separate from my explorations of functional programming. I was just doing this, this analysis of transformations, and it turns out that if you use, if you, if you have the option not to use assignment, but you use assignment anyway, it leads to a much, ba- a much worse outcome than if you don't use assignment. I don't know if I said that very well, but that's one of the interesting outcomes of, of this exercise that I've been doing. Uh, another interesting outcome is that recursion seems to lead to better algorithms than iteration, and th- this is something that I've run through a number of a number of experiments as well. I leave it out there as a premise. There's not enough evidence to really even call it a hypothesis. Certainly not a theory, but it is interesting, and a number of other people have taken it and. and uh, explored it some more, and and we'll see what happens. So with that, and I guess kind of along the same lines, is uh, has functional programming influenced the way you change testing and, I guess, the way that you structure your functions and build them for testing? Uh, I know there's kind of the, the U.S. style of test-driven development, which is check your state, and then there's the more U.K. style, which is the inject your... Uh, the mocking and checking the behavior. Uh, do you find the functional programming has leading you towards one or both styles more than, say, when you were do, when you do object-oriented testing? So this is it's a very interesting problem because when you're new to functional programming, you you start to think that everything must be done from the bottom up. Because, you know, major functions call minor functions, which call even more minor functions, which call even more minor functions. And nothing will execute unless you have those most, you know, most, most minor functions. So you have to start there. And you start with the minor functions, then you build up to the better, more major ones, and finally you build up to the, the top-level functions. And that's the way you start thinking when you're doing functional programming. And, and then at some point you realize, wait a minute... If I started at the top level, I can mock out the functions that, that I haven't written yet and just make sure they're called correctly without even caring what kind of values they return. And the whole notion of mocking out functions is something that we never did really in, in OO. We mocked out classes. We mocked out methods. But just individual functions, mocking them out is not a... Is not a concept that you you leap to right away, but it's perfectly possible, and it, and it's in fact it's trivial in a functional language, at least in a language like Closure, it's trivial to mock out a function. You just simply replace, bind it to a different name, and so you wind up with real easy ways to do mocks, and that allows you to do this top down style of development, 
Now, you, you mentioned the American and the UK school, or the London and the Chicago school, or God knows, they, there's all these different names for them. The statist style of testing, where you test the return values, and the mockist style, where you check to make sure the functions are called properly. I am more of a statist than a mockist. I use function returns more often than I use mocks. I do use mocks, just I don't mock absolutely everything. I will use mocks at the boundaries of the system, uh, where I'm crossing some significant boundary. Then I'll, then I'll use a mock object in the case of an OO language, or I will mock out functions. There is a, um, a growing batch of test frameworks in the uh, functional domain, uh, specifically in Clojure. There's a bunch of test frameworks getting written. One of the most fascinating, to me, is a test framework called Midge, M-I-D-J-E, written by Brian Merrick. And in this, in this test, test framework, first of all, the statements are, they feel like you're writing in prologue. I don't know if you've ever done any prologue, but prologue is a language where you, uh, you make logical statements, statements of truth. And it feels like you're doing that. You're, you state these facts, facts of truth. And then in the midst of it, you can say, but uh, I'm going to state this fact is true. It is true that when I call this function, it will return a 12. But I'm going to suppose that some other function might be called. And I'm going to say that that function is going to return a 22 which is a way of mocking out that function so that it simply returns a 22. And the language, the, the test framework makes that really easy to do. So it is a, a test framework that supports and encourages this top-down mocking style in functional program. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, because I noticed with higher-order functions, that leads you to be more dependency injection uh, as you would use it in the object-oriented world, which means mocking seems like it would be really easy in functional programming, and if not as easy as the state-based, where you're not making any mutable changes, but what you go in is always what comes out with no side effects. Yeah, in, in the object-oriented languages, we, we kind of depend on polymorphism to give us mocking. And in lispy kinds of languages, we simply replace the functions, which is kind of cool. I mean, you just, you just say, well, in the context of this particular test, when that particular function gets called, use this function instead. <laughs> it's very easy. It's not even polymorphism in the sense that we're used to. Just the replacement of a function. So, with, with that, you're known for the solid principles, Helping to put that and spread the word together. Yeah. Uh, not that they're your principles together, but you assemble them into a logical grouping of constructs. Right. So, from my perspective, moving into functional programming, it seems like those still hold just as well in functional programming than as well as object-oriented programming. I, and it seems like they hold exactly one for one. Uh, do you have any... So... I think they do. Certainly some of them do. The single responsibility principle is, is a, an example of, of a kind of timeless principle 
gather together the things that change for the same reasons, separate things that change for different reasons. I, I don't know what, I don't care what language you're in, that, that one is always going to hold. The open-close principle. Modules should be easy to extend even if they're hard to change. Uh, that's a, an obvious principle that, that spans any kind of language. Then you get into principles that are a little more interesting, like the Liskov substitution principle. That's a, that's a principle about subtypes. Do we have subtypes in functional languages? The answer to that is yes, but they're not quite the same form. There's no inheritance, for example, in most functional languages. There is in some. But still the idea that you can have a contract that manipulates a set of data structures is viable. It's still a viable idea. And it's possible to have these data structures that, although they aren't true subtypes of each other, within the context of a suite of functions, they can behave as though they are subtypes. And in that case, the Liskov substitution principle still applies. Principles like uh, interface segregation is almost entirely about uh, statically typed languages where we have to have um, inheritance uh, in order to um, get polymorphism. And the idea that we're, we're going to create a bunch of little interfaces instead of one big interface in order to segregate the namespaces. In languages like Ruby, that, that principle has no meaning at all, at least not the way it's defined. But the interface segregation principle is interesting because you can generalize it. You can turn it into a, a principle that says one element of the software should not know too much about another element of the software. Uh, in, in, uh, in particular, it should not know about functions that it doesn't call. But it also shouldn't know about other things. It shouldn't know, about, it shouldn't know too much about another module. And in that sense, the principle it becomes general across all languages. So you can take these principles, and some of them will just move right over into functional programming, and some you need to abstract a bit and find the underlying principle, and then that moves over into functional programming just as well. Yeah, yeah that's, that's kind of where I was getting at, which, and I think you gave a great summary of that as the person who kind of translated the solid principles into OO and how they abstract out. You've got you've done a couple of books about clean code. I have. So so just a couple small little books. Pretty tame. Uh nothing uh inflammatory in there really. <laughs> so I was wondering how much of a difference do you notice with functional programming and object oriented and things like clean code? How much of the standard functional programming paradigms make more sense on their own or kind of cleaned up into something that makes a little more declarative. For example, in Clojure, that's often to do something like a reduce plus and giving a list of items or reduce multiply or things like that. How much of that is more idiomatic and clean in and of itself versus extracting that out and just having either a function which or a macro which just is some of items. So this is this is another very interesting topic because when you first learn functional programming you are so enamored of the power 
of the functions and the data structures, the lists and the, the sets and all of the interesting things you can do, that you tend to write code that uses it. <laughs> and you, you, you wind up with this really interesting code that, that you know, challenges your brain and, and you get it to work and you think, oh, it's great, I've gotten it to work. And then after a while, you start to back off of that and think, wait a minute, um, some, some poor guy's going to have to read this. Uh, and, and I understand it because I wrote it, although even my understanding is beginning to fade now. Maybe, maybe what I should do is break this, this thing up into nicely named functions and not depend so much on reduce plus apply, blah, 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 blah but instead make nicely named functions that say what they do and bury all of that really fancy, nifty, um, map-reduce stuff behind some very tame, nice little function names that have nice little arguments so that people can read them. Yeah, I, was, that's, I started seeing someone pointed that out on one of my blog entries, and I was like, wait, that's, that seems even more valid. Even though reading about functional programming things, you hear a lot about map and reduce and things like that, where it seems like that's common knowledge and that's kind of the way, I guess, you're pushed to in learning of functional languages, but it's not necessarily as much as the clean code and readability outside of being familiar. There's this... Um you know, you can write a, a function in closure or in, in a functional language, which is this long chain of, of map reduces and filters and selections. And, you know, you can imagine the programmer putting it together and getting it to work gradually line by line. And it's this massive, interesting structure. And he eventually, you know, lightning crackles from his fingertips. He goes, it's alive! It's alive! And that's a great feeling. And then somebody's going to have to read it. <laughs> and that's the point where you say, okay, start extracting it out into a bunch of little tiny functions. Give them nice little names. Let's see if we can make this code boring now. So the ultimate goal of code is to be boring, not interesting. You want code to be... Uh, Ward Cunningham said it best. He said, you want, you want code that you're reading to be pretty much what you expected not an adventure in, in a horror movie. Just what's pretty much what you expected. So with this, you mentioned the SICP exercises, and I know that you've pushed a lot with CADAs, and I've seen you do a couple posted online and been to some conferences where you were doing a dojo-style CADA for some of these things. What are some of the recommendations for people who are just now trying to dip their toes into functional programming for kind of getting good practice at playing with something to understand the concepts around functional programming along with the language syntax. Well, certainly the, the exercises in SICP are a great place to start. Um, and there's, there's so many of them that I think you'd, you'd be spending months at that. And then there are, you know, there's the obvious things like the Euler project. You know, get up on the Euler project and start solving those problems using a functional language. That would be interesting to do. There's a, a set of standard kata uh, that you can practice. The, the point of a kata is not to solve the problem. A kata is a problem that's already been solved. 
The point of a kata is to practice the solution over and over and over again, to train your fingers and your brain to react in certain ways when you're faced with certain situations. And there's, there's quite a few now in functional uh, languages that you can find out on the, on the net and then practice them practice those same solutions so that you start to wire your brain to react properly in a functional context. Yeah, I've done the Euler projects and it's amazing some of the solutions that you can see in I did them with closure, but I had also looked at some of the other solutions in other languages and it's like, wow, this is straightforward. Had I tried to do this in Ruby or Java or C sharp, th- this thing would have just exploded whereas here it's a dozen lines or so. Another uh, interesting set of exercises are the cones, K-O-A-N-S. You can do a Google search for closure cones or you know, other cones of other languages. And these are, these are truly trivial little exercises that help you explore the language and the platform. Um, by the time you're done with the cones, you've kind of plumbed the depths of the language itself, and you know how to use every little twisty little bit of it. So I know you still go out and preach for a good object-oriented design. Sure. And one cannot blame you. How has your message changed when you reach out to the developers doing object-oriented programming? Uh, I don't know that it's changed at all. If we're doing OO, we, we have a set of principles that we need to follow. We need to write good code. We need to... Um, develop systems that are are uh, decoupled and plug in with a plug-in architecture I, all of that stuff I re- believe remains the same functional programming does not change what OO is uh, there's been a, a fair bit of discussion over whether or not OO and functional are even compatible uh, and I find that very very interesting because from my point of view they're they're uh, completely compatible and orthogonal. They have almost nothing to do with each other. A program can be both OO and functional simultaneously. And the, the reason people get confused about that is that they think of objects as being inherently mutable. But there's nothing about an object that requires it to be mutable. Uh, and you can, you can operate on an object... And its return value can be another object rather than the mutation of the existing object. Which means that you can write very reasonable object-oriented programs in a functional style. One of the, um, the benefits of the OO style is polymorphism. The ability to invoke a function and not know precisely what function is going to be invoked. Uh, there's this very interesting inversion of dependencies that occurs across a polymorphic boundary. And that inversion of dependencies can still exist in a functional language. Uh, example, Closure has a facility called Protocols uh, and Records, where you're allowed to um, create these. They look like methods. Uh, they look like method uh, declarations. Uh, and then they can be implemented by a, uh, a separate module entirely with the same kind of dependency inversion structure. So you get all the benefit of polymorphic OO, all the same principles apply as far as that's concerned, and you can also insert immu- uh, immutability and get a decent, functional, object-oriented program, which is structured, too, by the way. 
Yeah, that's kind of, you pretty much touched on what I started thinking of. I know one of your cohorts, Michael Feathers, who worked with you at Object Mentor, uh, has kind of touched on the functional, functional core, object-oriented ex- shell, and where that played in. So I wasn't sure if that had changed some of the underlying messaging that you kind of go to when you talk to developers of, you don't have to make everything mutable. You can keep state to a minimum inside your objects, and they don't have to necessarily interact with the whole and outside world. Right. So, yeah, you touched on a couple of things that I was going with with uh, the object-oriented and functional. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of Erlang, and it seems like that actor model is the highly functional aspect, or highly object-oriented aspect, where it's got the strong internal functional side of things, uh, service-oriented architecture, and the like. So I guess that, with that said, uh, how do you recommend some of these developers who are interested in or doing some functional programming on the side, introducing functional programming to their teammates and their work environments? Oh boy, you know, that's always a tricky thing to do. I, I certainly do it on the side, absolutely. Learn, learn a functional language on your own time, Get good at it on your own time. That's just the way that we learn language is the best. And then, you know, hunt for an opportunity that is the least intrusive that you can to um, maybe do a small functional project at work. Uh, It doesn't have to be a big deal. Maybe some tool, maybe some throwaway bit of code, something that's not going to challenge the powers that be and cause some kind of horrible reaction against uh, functional programming because some upstart decided they thought they had a better idea. Um, you have to be careful with the politics and all of this stuff. But, you know, a, a little little project that might do well. Maybe if it's successful, you can do a couple more. If you can get some other folks who start thinking, yeah, you know, this um, this is starting to make a lot of sense, then you might be able to make a case for a full project, small, but a full project, uh, using a um, a functional language and see if you can get the ball rolling. This is always hard. It's always emotional. People will always get upset. You're changing things. You're disturbing the status quo. And yet, it's what we have to do. And so we do it all the time. I remember um, the very first time I introduced C into a company that I was working for. We were an assembly language shop. We did assembly language. We were real men. And I introduced C. This would would have probably been about 1980. And just the reaction was just horrendous. People storming around going, it's too slow, can't possibly use it. Uh, It's a high-level language, won't fit in our little machines, blah, 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 blah. And um, I took the strategy of implementing tiny little projects of my own in C, and very gradually, you know, adding a little bit here and a little there, and and getting a couple of recruits, and uh, within three years, we were training everybody in the company how to use C, and we were a C shop. But it takes that kind of time, and it takes that kind of persistence and gradual insinuation. So things like a lunch and learn, or small little trying to get people over lunch to do the katas, brown bags, and things like that. Absolutely, little things like that. It, you know, minor, non-intrusive things uh, that don't challenge anybody's domain—at least not at first. Enough to pique people's interest in. Wait, 
you wrote this you wrote this part of the thing in how many lines over how much time yeah kind of projects that kind of stuff and you just you know and you don't want to show you know glorious success because that becomes a challenge um you just want to show moderately interesting results and then the the real the real success of change is if you are the agent of change you have succeeded when the change becomes someone else's idea and not yours and you just sit back and notice that other people have said have suddenly had this brilliant idea <laughs> You don't take any credit for it, and you just walk away and think, okay, my job here is done. That's some really good advice, and probably advice that we need to reflect on more often as we try and crusade for uh, crusade for changes ourselves by getting wrapped up in, we have to have been the one who, have, who gets credit for the idea. Yeah, you kind of want the organization, you know, looking around going, who was that masked man? So, as we're getting close to the time, I was wondering, since we mentioned at the beginning, you've just been doing this for just a little while, with different technology eras and swings. Is there any things that you've noticed hold true that we don't tend to remember as an industry, with our uh, 10-year forgetfulness, 10-year amnesia? We, um, we have a... It's not really a 10-year amnesia um, that we have. What we have is... A, an extremely young industry, uh, and it's young in two dimensions. It's young because the industry itself is only about 60 years old, and as industries go, that makes it very young. Uh, but more seriously, the average age of programmers is on the order of 30-something, which means that they weren't programming 10 years ago, and which means they don't have any memory of anything that happened in programming more than 10 years ago. So it's more a lack of knowing than it is a forgetting. And it's also a disease. And the disease is a lack of interest in what happened 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. And that's tragic because almost everything interesting that happened in our industry happened in the 60s. All of the major paradigms that we currently use today, structured programming, object-oriented programming, functional programming, were invented in the 10 years between 1957 and 1968. The level of innovation in software has decreased remarkably since that period. Oh, we get, I mean, cool languages and stuff. We've got great tools. The tool innovation has been tremendous. But the technique innovation, the innovation of what software is and how to write it, was pretty much all concentrated in the 60s. And we're just the students of that period of time right now. If we're unable to look back and study that, if we're uninterested in looking back and study that, we won't learn it. That's one of the reasons I like SICP so much. It is this um, culmination of knowledge uh, based on stuff that had happened 20 years earlier and then was presented in the 80s and, and now people are reading it in the 2000s and thinking, oh my God, it's wonderful. Well, yeah, okay, but it's 40 years old too. Sounds great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is a good clarification that we do have a very young young workforce as well as a young industry. And I have noticed myself that 
there's a lot of stuff just trying to pick through and hear about things that have done from the 60s, the 70s, and 80s that, had we known about, would probably make our jobs so much easier. It's just good to know. (laughs) Good to know, you know, what happened back then and who did those things and why it was done. You know, why don't we use GoTo? It's an interesting question. Why don't we use GoTo? What was Dijkstra's um, goal there? You know, why are, why is why are all of our languages OO languages? They are. They're all OO languages now. Why? Can you answer that question? Um, can you write a quick short? Just off the cuff. You know how to write a quick short? Why not? If you do, if you do, great. If you don't, well, why why don't you know that? <laughs> it's one of those basic algorithms that everybody ought to know. So just stuff like that. That sounds great. I want to thank you for your time. Going to wrap up. So, would like to ask a couple of just questions for you. Of is there anything you would like to plug? Appearances you have coming up? Projects you're involved with that you would like to promote? Or just recommendations in general you think should be noticed to our or should be announced to our audience? I um, have been producing for quite some time now a series of videos on cleancoders.com. They are videos that teach basic programming skill, design skill, architecture skill, test-driven development, principles of object-oriented design, and it's pretty much a summary of, of everything I've learned in the last 40-some-odd years. I have a hell of a lot of fun making these videos. They're, they're fun for me to produce. They're kind of a little off-center, perhaps. They're fun for me to, uh, to have people watch so cleancoders.com is the place to go to see those so uh you have any place people can find you online if they would like to follow you via twitter github or any other recommendations is there a site that links to all of them or oh my twitter handle is uncle bob martin uh my primary web page is cleancoder.com and of course i am the master craftsman at eighth light which is 8thlight.com, the digit 8, T-H-L-I-G-H-T.com. And I should say 8th Light is a company that serves their clients by following the professional attitudes that I and others have been teaching for some time now. They're a uh, very dedicated test-driven development shop, a dedicated apprenticeship shop. So folks who are interested in working at a place where you know, we try to do things right, I might want to go to that website, 8thlight.com. Sounds great. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I would like to thank Uncle Bob for giving us time to join me today. Uh, it was a great honor and pleasure talking with you today. My pleasure, too. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery. <laughs>